0: So I actually have a story about how I met my wife in Austin through Twitter. So we were tweeting each other and Anthony Bourdain was coming for a show and we both noticed that each other was going. We didn't meet each other there, but we kept in touch. Uh, She kept asking me for food recommendations. And I was like, who is this girl asking me for recommendations? I'm not her personal service, but I thought she was kind of cool. A couple weeks later at the social media club in Austin, uh, they used to have a club for it because it was a new thing, we both noticed that we were at the meeting. I was sitting on her left and I tweeted at her saying, hey, this is kind of weird, but I think I'm over here next to you. Maybe we can chat. We had a conversation there just for a few minutes and then we continued to tweet to each other. Long story short, we're now married thanks to social media. I'm Peter Sy, and this is I Love You So Much.
1: Welcome to I Love You So Much, the Austin 360 podcast, a show for everyone caught up in an ongoing love affair with Austin, even if it's complicated.
2: I'm your host, Tali Mosley.
3: I'm Omar Gayaga,
2: And I'm Addie Broyles, coming to you from the shores of Lady Bird Lake in the offices of the Austin American Statesman.
1: In this week's episode, we're joined by Bill Childs, who wants to raise a generation of radio nerds. As the host of KTX's Spare the Rock, Spoil the Child, Bill's weekly show has been playing indie music for indie kids for over a decade. Clark
3: Richards comes from a family you may have heard of, Anne Richards and Cecile Richards, to name a few members. But did you know he's also a passionate percussionist? This week, he comes in to talk to us about a new sequin-filled show he's a part of, A Night in Rio, from North America's largest samba group, Austin Samba.
2: The Amazon bookstore has touched down in Austin, but it doesn't have a local author section or any books rated less than four stars. What's afoot at this online retail giant turned brick and mortar? Your intrepid I love you so much hosts investigate.
1: We'll conclude as always with a toast, but let's start with Bill Childs, who, in addition to hosting a legitimately cool kids' music show, is an attorney, a dad, and even runs his own record label.
3: Bill, welcome to I Love You So Much. Thanks for coming in.
4: Thanks. It's great to be here.
3: So tell us uh, your origin story and the origin of uh, Spare the Rock, Spoil the Child, how the show got started, and, and kind of how you got into radio.
4: Sure. So I went to college at McAllister College up in St. Paul, Minnesota and had sort of been obsessed with, weirdly obsessed with radio. We can go all the way back to uh, Bartlesville, Oklahoma, where I uh, at one point won a copy of the actual LPs for Casey Kasem's American Top 40. Uh, one week when Stars on 45's Five's horrifically bad in retrospect, Beatles medley was number one. This must have been nineteen seventy nine. <laughs> I don't know what it was, but uh, um, I won it from the local bonanza because the radio station would have a drawing at the bonanza where you could enter in it, and my mom was there for for a political meeting, and so I entered as many times as I could, and I got this record. I listened to four records. I listened to it constantly. <laughs> it was basically the first rock music coming into our house. I'd grown up. We'd grown up uh, NPR station pretty much consistently. And my dad had a bunch of uh, box sets of jazz uh, music that he remembered listening to on the Clear Channel AM station. Not Clear Channel, the company, but Clear Channel AM, uh, the powerful stations coming out of New Orleans growing up in, in South uh, Arkansas. Anyway, so fast forward to, to McAllister College and I was on the, the radio station there, WMCN. Loved doing radio, kind of tried a little bit to get into radio. In retrospect, kind of glad that didn't happen because it's a pretty scary way to make a living if you want to actually make a living and stay in one place. But go go forward another 20 years, I guess, or, or 15 years, and uh, I was living in Western Massachusetts. We just moved out there. I was teaching law school there and saw a flyer for a low-power FM station, 100-watt radio station there that was looking for programmers and for people to be involved in the getting them up and started it was brand new it wasn't even on the air yet so I put in an application got involved on in the policy side and then also uh, put in an application for this idea of doing a show for kids and their grown-ups my kids were little at the time <laughs> and uh, and we had started to listen to some kids music I can talk about sort of how I found about that if you want but I um, and when we had been living in D.C., we'd gone and seen some kids' music. And so I thought, oh, th- that could be fun to tr- kind of do the same thing for other people's kids, what I'd done with mine, which was listening to some music that was made for kids and some music that wasn't made for kids but was sort of kid-appropriate. Mm. And to try and help uh, sort of retros- – in retrospect, anyway, I think of it as being sort of creating a generation of radio nerds. Um, and then after a couple of years, we got picked up by the commercial station there in Northampton. This is in Northampton, Massachusetts. Moved down here in 2012 and switched to syndication, still being on that original home station there. And then KUTX picked us up, and that became our home station, I guess, almost three years ago.
2: Come along, children. Now we're going to have a little music,
3: like old times. Look, now I'll start the melody on the organ.
0: It's Spare the Rock with Bill and Ella. It's Spare the Rock and sometimes Liam. It's Spare the Rock time. It's time for Spare the rock.
4: Spare the Rocks, Bowl the Child, indie music for indie kids, coming to you from our flagship station, KUTX 98.9. My name is Bill Childs, right over there. Liam. How are you today, Liam? i um, you know, pretty good. How are you doing? I'm good. Coming to the end of another school year. Yay! Excited for you. So you're going to have Spring Band soon. Little March so how band.
2: many stations are you on now?
4: Probably about a dozen. Yeah. Um, Alaska to Virginia is what I like to and say. And how
2: many episodes are you
4: on? I believe... The one that I just recorded last night, if I remember right, was our six hundred and fifty-six. Oh, my goodness. Bill, wow. bravo. <laughs> so, been doing it for a while. Okay,
3: Bill, can I tell you real quick my, my embarrassing first LP? Sure. Disco Duck. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a real thing. Hey, oh, of course. That really existed.
4: <laughs>
2: so, I, I do want to get into kids' music and adults' music and that Go, Going straight,
4: but you're not admitting it, no, what you're, I'm what you're Casey, embarrassing. I'm
2: going to Casey Kasem. Okay. What did you learn from Casey Kasem that you still use today?
4: Um... That's an interesting question. Um, you know, the way he would backsell stuff, so, you know, mm-hmm. announcing it afterwards... Was was consistent with what I still think of is, and and when I'm talking to people, if they ask, if they're like doing radio and ask what I like about radio, is you know have a thing you want to say, say it and get on with your life. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was first doing either my show or I I also used to do some fill-in uh, part-time stuff on the on the commercial Triple A station in Northampton, the program director would say, you have a lot to say, you don't need to say three or four things, just say one and 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 move on if you if you want to say that other thing next time you play that song you can do that but yeah. but say a thing and hmm. and and uh, get on it that's actually sort of become my belief about a lot of art is that uh, and and other media in general is that a lot of it could be shorter. Hmm. Um, most three and a half minute songs could probably be three minutes and be that much better.
2: Well, kids also have a short attention span. That's true, but do so so you know do your I.
4: audience? But but I I think like uh, you know uh, little Steven has a, a syndicated radio show, and I always remember the promo for that it says, "We don't play no slow slow songs. We don't play no songs over three and a half minutes long." <laughs> Something like that, and I always thought that was a was a good idea to have. I mean, the model should be be an Elastica album. Exactly, that's yeah, exam- yeah, no, that's a, that's Two a minutes great example. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> boom, get in, get out. Unless you've got a lot to say, you, you don't need to spend that much time doing it.
3: So you you have other lives besides uh, radio. You've, you've, you're you you in law, you have run a record label. Like what was it of those things that brought you to Austin specifically?
4: Um, it was mostly the, the law practice. I So I was teaching law school, liked a lot, decided to leave for a variety of reasons, mostly sort of the, the bottom had fallen out on the legal employment market, uh, especially for students at schools like the one I was teaching at. And, um, so I had sort of a weird resume at that point in that I had been teaching for eight years and, but was sort of the same age as people who would mostly be going to firms as partners with a book of business. And I didn't have that. So I kind of had to go somewhere where I knew somebody and I knew people here and we'd lived here before my wife and I had lived here when I was in law school. Knew we liked it. Knew we didn't want to go anywhere that was less than a lateral move, sort of geographically, mm-hmm. um, and uh, knew that there's a great radio, or great, uh, great music scene here, of course, and that was uh, important for. So there
2: was us. never any question you were going to continue the show.
4: You know, actually, there was a little bit of one at that point. My kids were getting a little older. My son was, I guess, fifth grade, and my son and my daughter was eighth grade. And I had sort of assumed that maybe it was going to end. And they both made it very clear that they did not want it to end.
2: And so now they're in high school and college.
4: They are, but they're still on the show pretty consistently. Well, my daughter is not on the show consistently, but Liam, my son, is on pretty regularly still. So
2: what? Gosh, okay. A bunch of questions popped in my mind here about your kids' experience of growing up on the radio. Um, But first I want you to tell me about the difference. Where in your mind is the line between kid music and music that kids might be interested in?
4: That's an interesting question. So um, sometimes there's no line there at all, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't think. There are certainly, you know, I think about the White Stripes. They have the song We're Going to Be Friends, which is not a kid's song, but there's no question that it is written from a child's perspective. Um, and then there might be, you know, Dale Watson songs about armadillos, right, that uh, that are not written for kids at all mm-hmm. um, but are certainly kid-appropriate, but also grown-ups are going to enjoy it. Or like on on this coming weekend show – when we're recording this, I'm playing a super chunk song that has not, that is not really aimed at kids, and kids might not be all that interested at all, but I wanna plant the seeds of uh they might like it musically and it, thematically it's not inappropriate for them.
5: Mm-hmm. If ever was a creature born with
4: a jinx, that's a Texas armadillo whatever he thinks. That road ain't so wide. That card on so fast, that kind of thing always ends in. It ain't their fault,
0: they're made that way. Persistent armadillas to their dying day.
3: We, we had Saul Paul as a guest on our show, who, oh, yeah, yeah. who has become a, a staple on kids' radio. Like we hear him on Kids Plays Live, we hear him on your show. Uh, it seems like when he came in, he told us that, you know, he's not, he, his audience is kids. Like he found that audience. But he's not, there's no lack of musical complexity to what he's doing. There's no, like, I'm dumbing this down because it's that audience. Like, he's a musician in every sense of the word, like any other musician. Um, Do you you see, though, examples out there of of music aimed at kids that is dumbed down, that is not, you know, kind of?
4: Sure. Yes, um, absolutely. And most of the time, I'm not going to be as interested in that from a programming perspective. I don't mind simple songs. I mean, like I was just talking about, a lot of the best songs in the world are the White Stripes are not not Mm -hmm. musically complex. But if you're making it simple, because you don't think kids are uh, up for that, I think you're probably going to fail in some other ways that is going to make it not that interesting to me as well.
2: Where did that come from? That culture of creating kids music that was really dumbed down musically?
4: I you know I don't know exactly historically although you can think about like kids, nursery kids, rhymes, media in been general been for a long time. But those right. aren't
2: necessarily that doesn't I don't necessarily put mother you know Mother Goose rhymes into this camp of of sort of like simplistic yeah. music music or tunes that I'm not interested in listening to. Yeah,
4: they, they they there's there's a surprising amount of complexity to a lot of old kids' music too. You know, you go back Woody Guthrie or Ella Jenkins mm-hmm. or any of those mm-hmm. things. Um, and uh, you know, for the very very young kids. You're going to have some pretty simple stuff because it's going to be harder for them to follow along. Maybe it's there's a question. I mean, I I feel like um, if you think about early children's literature, early in sort of my in our scheme of things, like Madeline Lengel, say lots of complexity. But then I think there's probably a a point there where it got pretty infuriatingly simple, and I feel like we're kind of coming back into we're probably a little ways into kind of a renaissance of complex and sophisticated uh, children's Literature and media more generally. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm, mm-hmm. I'm kind of making this up.
2: No, no. I think that you're onto something though. I I mean, my kids uh, watched Baby Mozart, for instance, whenever they were kids, and that was kind of controversial at the time. You know, should they be having the like, screen is, time? Like, is it
4: helping or
3: not helping? But yeah, it's, right.
2: but classical music? It was kind of this resurgence of like, okay, well, let's put classical music headphones on babies' belt or you know, mom's bellies mm. while babies are in utero to try to make them smarter. So I think there was some sort of shift that happened where people, adults who were raising kids, started realizing that they too, they we don't have to collect effectively spend our lives in and baby are us, babies are us just because we have babies. Right. And I don't know exactly, can't pinpoint that, but your show certainly appeals to all of us parents who are in that camp.
4: Well, I appreciate it. that. That's sort of the goal of it anyway. Yeah, yeah. good. Well, there was, there's
3: also been this sort of movement of artists that, that Addy, you and I may have gone to school listening to and who have found like kind of secondary careers with that audience, like like Lisa Loeb, they might be giants. Sure. Like, you know bands that you've actually heard of, and but are also you know have a, have a new generation of listeners, you know, with music specifically geared toward toward younger people.
4: Yeah, well, and that's actually kind of how I first learned of the sort of the the, the current wave of what kind of gets called kindy music, whether you want whether that makes you cringe <laughs> or not. But kid <laughs> kid indie music, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I heard nice. that <laughs> so, um, back in I think it must have been two thousand or two thousand one. There was a New York Times magazine, um cover story with Dan Zanes, who I remembered from his time in the Del Fuegos. And I wasn't actually a big Del Fuegos fan, I have to admit. But um, but the story sounded interesting. And so I went on, I guess it must have been a pretty early version of Amazon, ordered that, and it had the, uh, if you like this, you might also like Justin Roberts. And Justin Roberts used to be in a band in Minneapolis that I went to see in bars all the time called Pimentos for Gus. I was like, oh, I like those guys, and uh, bought that as well. And those are still both artists that are sort of core uh, to the show. they both been on records I've put out now, too, and they've both been on the show.
0: Summer's gone now. Stoves are on now. Outside there's silver on the ground in a moonlit town. Potatoes were baking. Everyone was making costumes out of crazy things they found.
2: So, what did your kids teach you about kids' tastes in music, and how you know your challenged your assumptions? Maybe when they were much younger, the, the the works that they were actually able to enjoy, or the things maybe that they still like and listen to you that that, they, that you thought they might have grown out of.
4: Um, that's it's an, another interesting question, and um, you know, it, it's it's a little bit weird, and I wonder if it's something to be happy about or not that both of my kids still end up listening to a lot of the same music that I do and uh which sort of puts them squarely in 1990s indie rock which <laughs> it may or may not be ideal. Hey dad I, I just discovered the Goo Goo Dolls. <laughs> yeah no god no but uh only, it would have to be very early Goo Goo Dolls for me to be okay with it back when they were trying to be the replacements rather than whatever they became but um I'm sorry did I just judge? Like, w- what dad? <laughs> <laughs> um but well i think to some extent it kind of goes back to what we were saying is it made me realize that they could um be into and really enjoy the complexity of stuff that is was beyond their years sort of by by target mm-hmm. um i i mean i remember some of my uh daughter especially some of her early favorite songs were fountains of Wayne songs um and uh which is not super surprising in retrospect because they're pretty straightforward guitar pop, right? Mm-hmm. Um, although there was there's one song where he had to say no, no. What he's saying is going to get my ship together. <laughs> it's like a boat. <laughs> Why would you think it was anything else, Ella?
3: Oh, I've gotten in so much trouble with the wife, like playing like hey,
4: play serious uh, the Heat R and B. You know, play play that new Kendrick Lamar song. Oh, I was like nope. Yeah, and I have to say, sort of on the flip side, it is it is a relief to now. I'm going to go see Superchunk uh, with my son in a couple months and. One of their most famous songs, I know. Or I don't know if I, we get to swear here, but there's Slack, Mother Blanker, um, and it's fun to hear him singing along in the shower and not feel too guilty about it.
2: How do you talk to your kids about that? I mean, like, I remember when Lemonade dropped and we were just, I was listening to that a lot and I struggled because the kids could understand the lyrics. I wanted them to understand the lyrics, sure. but I also wanted to have a conversation with them about the complexities of them saying the N-word. For instance,
4: yeah. Well, so uh, I mean that that's there are a few words where there's sort of a line, and we don't go past that. Mm-hmm. Or I uh, so them don't. You
2: just recommend talking to your kids.
4: And absolutely. Saying, oh yeah. You're yeah, going to yeah. hear
2: a song. You're going to hear a word in this song that you're not allowed to use. Yes. No. But, that
4: that's absolutely yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. And uh, one of the things that I got from my mom it was sort of just don't lie to your kids and I think this kind of goes in the same category as it's always better to talk to them and listen to them mm-hmm. um than to to put lines and say well we just don't we don't don't have that conversation
3: so so the flip side of uh you know being immersed in in and I I, I listen to your show I listen to kids place live so I hear a lot of the you know these musicians and groups that no one else <laughs> who doesn't have kids has yeah, ever yeah. heard of uh, Laurie Berkner band. They're like sure. that's an example. Um, but what about the uh, the other thing? Where like the parents that are trying to introduce their kids to the music that they love, you know, the '90s, whatever, or the Beatles, you know, every you know, and oh, when they're thirteen, I'll introduce them to Pink Floyd, and it'll blow their minds. You have this whole roadmap of what the music you want to introduce your kids to as they're growing up. But like, I see parents overdoing it. I see parents like if you if you're at a concert and you have a toddler with you and they're wearing a Susie and the banshees shirt <laughs> you're not doing that kid any favors you're really not you're that we know that kid's not listening to that yeah uh, so is there a line of like parents maybe trying too hard to get their kids to love the same music they do
4: i'm sure there is um, you know it's same same as i was saying before kind of listen and pay attention to whether they're enjoying it or not and if if it's not something they're enjoying don't push it um, the other thing that I that sometimes amongst me is the people who sort of reject the notion of kids' music because, well, they love what I'm listening to, which is awesome that they love the Beatles and or Susie and the Banshees or whatever. Um, but would you also say, I don't read my kids', kids books because they love David Foster Wallace? <laughs> um, I mean, they're, they're, I, I feel like it's sort of in the same category. And again, uh, probably a third of what we play is not music that is made for kids. And I'd certainly think of the show as sort of the gateway drug, if you will. Uh, for moving on into to what I think of as, as pretty interesting independent music um, but uh, but I, I, I think it's possible to not be doing your kids a favor to only think that they should be listening to your music.
2: Like mm. Ooh, mm. ooh, that's deep. Only because I think that expands to so much about your life. You know. Sure. The books, the food, the places you travel, the, just the ways you think about, running your home. I mean obviously your kids are, you know, they're part of your family and your family's culture and that's predominantly run by the parents, but if parents have such an autocratic view of running a family, that just doesn't sound like a very fun place to grow up in if you'd ask me.
4: Yeah. Well and I mean I think I think it's sort of both that in terms of the family governance isn't quite the right word but but what you're suggesting but also I mean I, it just comes back to, to would you say that kids should only listen, read the books that you're reading I think right. that seems yeah. bonkers mm-hmm. um, and only listen to the podcast that you're listening to and only uh, and I think the food is actually I would be curious about your take on like children's menus mm-hmm. is that a I'm going to ask you, is that a good idea for, uh, for uh, a. <laughs> is it dumbing down? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I think that it's an ebb and a flow. And I think that, um, you know, like chicken fingers, <laughs> people love to hate on chicken fingers, but, you know, I eat chicken fingers. Just sure. DQ chicken finger basket with that gravy. Hello. Um, but I think if I can model having an open mind and they're not being like bad foods, you know, I'm not going to put down corn dogs because, I mean, there's a time and a place for a corndog, right? Just like I would want them to have an open mind when I suggested them that they try something outside, outside of their norm. So it's I think it's respecting kids' palates and respecting that, yeah, they're not – I mean, we want them to be little adults. I understand that. But there's a, a time and a place to be a kid and don't take their childhood away from them. And, yeah. and sometimes that might mean ordering off of the kids' menu. But if you start creating shame around that at an early age, you're going to have a price to pay in 10, 20, 30 years.
0: Some people are nice. Some people are mean. Some people are somewhere, somewhere in between. You know you're left from your right. You know you're
3: I mean, what I'm seeing with my kids who are eight and ten is that they they do want to listen to you know the stuff that's on the radio that they hear in you know the van or whatever you know as as they're being shuttled or whatever, but they also really want to hear you know like Kids Place Live or whatever and and there it really is a vibrant music scene around that and I've I've found favorite songs through your show and through and through that station that you know non parents would never have heard of would never have stumbled across um, I mean where are people hearing this music and, and can you talk about like just the live performance aspect of it that these are bands that tour that have fans that go all around the country
4: yeah um, I mean it's it's a weird uh um uh sort of absences and presences like austin you can there's a fair number of things i mean i I book a lot of the things but then there's also uh the austin kitty limits stage at austin state limits during south by there's some other uh family oriented things including the events that, that that we put together um but then i was talking to uh somebody who is is from here but living up in dallas who says there's almost no nothing nowhere to see kids music in dallas um, a lot of the times this could be booked by libraries um, and different states have different uh, sort of, of, of power about that or, or funding really more to the point. Um, Arkansas, for example, we were talking before we came on the air here. Um, there are a lot of Austin li- or Arkansas libraries that have funding to bring through artists, especially during the summertime. Mm. Um, and so there's some places where you can go out and see a lot of great independent kids music. Sometimes it's going to be just regional acts. Sometimes it's going to be national acts. Um, a lot of the festivals will have that. Sh- uh, Lollapalooza also has a kids stage, the Kids Palooza stage. think um, think Coachella has all a these kids, hip kids
2: going to Coachella <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's
4: so funny. with their Susie and the Banshee t-shirt exactly <laughs> right 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 um and that's how I saw a lot of those artists early on even before we lived here we would come down here for ACL pretty often and uh go kind of hang out and see the stuff at the kids stage for a lot of the time although um we'd wander around a mm-hmm. fair amount uh, Frank Turner I don't know if you know Frank Turner but um the first time we saw him was probably eight or ten years ago he's now selling out stubs but um he uh was on that stage by the Rocks that isn't there anymore, the Austin Venture stage, I think it was, whatever it was, kind of opposite from the from the food tent. And my daughter, who was then probably eight or nine, and I had gone and got a taco when we were walking back, and she said, "I think we should go see him." And uh, he's become a favorite. So she was who got me. Into, into seeing I love it
2: kid led learning yes uh, Bill how can listeners listen to your show and find you on the internet
4: so we're on uh, KUTX here in Austin at 6 o'clock on Sunday evenings if you go to KUTX.org you can also click on listen and hear the most recent show there or if you want to go deeper in the archives if you go to sparetherock.com we have archives going back to 2012 up there and uh, sparetherock.com Facebook and Twitter at Spare the Rock Bill thank you so much for coming in we really appreciate it we'll be listening great thanks so much great talking to you
2: Austinite Clark Richards is many things, son of Ann Richards, the former governor of Texas and the creator of Resistance at the Capitol, to name a few. But he's also the assistant director of Austin Samba, which has a feather-filled, bedazzled show coming up this weekend. He talks to us about A Night in Rio and why this diverse
5: community is so special to him.
1: Welcome, Clark. Thank you so much for being here, and I love you so much.
5: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Clark is the assistant director of Austin Samba, and you guys have a show coming up this weekend, A Night in Rio. I want to just give listeners an idea of what to expect when they witness, perhaps for the first time, the spectacle that is an Austin Samba performance.
5: Uh, well, it's hard to describe, but uh, imagine a, a great deal of uh, feathers and uh, bedazzled bikinis and... Uh, <laughs> drummers uh, making beautiful music uh, a lot of dance going on so uh, it's a it's a spectacular event
3: birthday
1: parties (laughs) (laughs) especially the bedazzled bikinis part (laughs) feathers everywhere so like how long is a show and also question part b to that question is how is this particular show divided up like is there a narrative going on are there different groups taking different parts like what is it how long and what does it feel like
5: so this show should be about an hour uh there are several elements to it we're uh, trying to present the uh experience of being in Rio de Janeiro the night before and the night of uh, Carnival Parade in the Avenida there will be uh, rehearsal scenes there will be street scenes with various kinds of music, there will be uh, Pagogi uh, folk music there will be capoeira uh, demonstration as well as uh, Bae Funk which is uh, disco type uh, music that uh, we'll have a performance to and then we'll Portray what it's like to actually parade on the Avenida, uh, wearing a costume and uh, competing for the prize.
3: And When you say there's like a rehearsal segment, is that like sort of like a show within a show?
5: Well, what so we'll be bad. doing is <laughs> 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 what we'll be doing is trying to p- show what it's like for a Samba school to be getting ready to uh, perform on the Avenida and and how everybody's you know working on their parts and trying to get it get it just so. Cool.
1: Whenever I describe Samba to people, I describe it as a more is more type atmosphere. So in other parts of the dance world, it can be avant-garde, it can be subtle. Like, Samba's not going for subtlety, is what I'm saying.
5: Well, the Austin Samba performances generally are not going for subtlety, although <laughs> we will have some variation in tone in this performance. We'll have some folk music, we'll have uh, oh, nice. some... some slower and quieter pieces uh, and then punctuated obviously with the big full bateria and the full you know bedazzled experience.
1: (laughs) Okay so speaking of the bateria the drum line how many people are we talking here?
5: For a night in Rio we should have 35 or thereabouts drummers going on and there's sections there's lots of big bass drums there's lots of snare drums there's lots of uh, Chicagos, which are little racks of jingles, they go cha 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 My wife is in the Chicayo section, and then there will be the tambourines, which are a tiny little drum hit with a very loud little stick that goes ta 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 that like that. <laughs> uh, so it's a big group of drummers all playing in a coordinated uh, fashion.
1: And dancers like are the, like rough like ballpark. How many dancers?
5: I think we have 30 dancers for this one. I haven't done a head count since I pay a temp- more attention to the drummers, but we'll have the Passistas, who will wear the big feathers and dance in the high heels, and then we'll have the Alegria, who are more of an uh, Afro-centric, Afro-Brazilian style uh, we'll have the Malandros, the, the bad boys, uh, and they'll be doing the male samba style. And then uh, we also have some Bayanas who are the traditional elder dancers of uh, the samba schools. So this is a night in Rio,
3: We, but every year has a, a, like a different theme. I mean, What are some of the themes that, that you all have had over the
5: last couple of years? So last year's theme was uh, the Big Easy. So we did a lot of music out of New Orleans. The year before was the Texas Horse Opera. So we did uh, some Selena uh, and then other Texas uh, favorites. Uh, And then the year before that, let's see, the year before that was the Mystic Circus. And the year before that was based on... uh, Black Orpheus, which is a famous uh, Oscar-winning film about Rio de Janeiro from 1959,
1: and is it and that one is the like Romeo and Juliet of the region? Sort of, it's a love story. It's star-crossed lovers,
5: right? And it and it tells the story of actually preparing for. Oh, is it
0: uh,
1: Othello? Maybe. No, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Some kind of Shakespeare myth <laughs> transmuted into a completely different region. <laughs> a Midsummer Night's
5: Dream. I don't I'm just grasping here. <laughs> anyway. Frankly, you you've exceeded my literary uh, knowledge <laughs> of Orfeo Negro, uh, but it is a depiction of preparing for Carnival in Rio from one of the favelas.
3: I'm thinking it's probably not Orphan Black,
1: right? Cool. No, not <laughs> okay. that one. Okay. Not that one. Um, okay. So so so, but the interesting thing about you, Clark. There are many interesting things about you, but this is not the only um, music experience that you are a part of. You also host something Called resistance. That did it get started in the wake of the 2016 election? Like, what is resistance, and how did it come together?
5: Well, this is the uh, sort of the brainchild of my wife Sharon and our friend Stephanie Pyland and I. Uh, we participated in the Women's March in 2017, which which thousands of people took to the streets uh, in in Austin, and there was a call for drum corps to help move the people along, and so we formed one of the three drum corps for that. And afterwards we decided that it was important to keep providing this sort of musical opportunity for marches and rallies and parades and things like that but that had a social or political bent that wouldn't be suitable for Austin Samba's mission and so we were formed resist dance and we uh, were much more casual there's no rehearsals drop in and drum with us or dance with us at any event uh, upcoming, for example, we should uh, we should be appearing at Queer Bomb, which is the uh, alternative to the Pride Parade, which will be coming up in a month or two, and is a lot of fun, and it's a street parade with a lot of uh, very active uh, expression of opinion. So, yeah, go ahead. Oh,
3: and this generally is is like peaceful protest, right? Like nobody's gonna get hurt or like in any danger of being part of that, right?
5: Well, I mean. I, I've frankly sometimes been concerned that somebody else might be acting out, like the last time we were at a parade, uh, one of our dancers uh, told me later on that she thought we were being followed by a uh, undercover police officer who was just monitoring to make sure nobody got, you know, difficult with us. Uh, but for us, we're completely peaceful. We're just there to, you know, make a joyful noise and, you know, dance in the street and encourage people to express themselves and participate in democracy.
3: Oh, I didn't think you were like clubbing anybody with drumsticks. I didn't mean like you guys are in danger of like being there and you know you're you're hitting stuff and you're like you don't have your hands free to defend yourself or something. I'm just painting a scenario here. I don't mean do anything by it.
1: <laughs> um, the drums can, sticks can be their protection. <laughs> so, I mean, this is this is not your y- your family has a long tradition of being involved in peaceful democracy. Um, with your mother, your sister, tell your you have many family members who are involved in. Um, government in one way or another.
5: Sure. Well, in politics, and I'm the least politically active, I suppose, uh, member of my family. Uh, m- most people know of my mother and Richards, who was the governor of Texas. And then uh, I'm perhaps more famously now the uh, brother of Cecile Richards, uh, who uh, everybody seems to know nowadays. Uh, my father also, David Richards, uh, was and still is uh, one of the most uh, successful voting rights litigators uh, throughout the history of uh you know, constitutional and voting rights lawsuits. Uh, And so I grew up around politics and political action. Uh, It was always a little intimidating and scary to me. So I sort of hung in the background, but I've certainly seen how the sausage gets made in a lot of those things. Well, you have a legal career. I'm
3: I'm curious, how did that
5: get you into Austin Samba? How did you get involved with that group? Well, the whole thing about the legal career is that, you know, you have to really make a living to survive in Austin and raise a family. So that's kind of, I mean, I started out as a, as a mental health counselor and realized that I couldn't afford to, you know, live in Austin and raise my kids, and uh, law school seemed like the best alternative. So I, uh, I practiced law to support my drumming habit. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I mean, truthfully, I sort of got into samba um, through a roundabout way. I frankly started drumming with hippies in the park in a drum circle and then I started playing West African with my music teacher, Noah Mosgofian, who uh, plays an Austin samba. And then it's now almost eight years ago, uh, first came to an Austin samba event and have been uh, an active participant ever since. And uh, it's one of the most, uh, most powerful things in my
0: life.
1: describe the community a little bit of Austin Samba? Because A, it's free, I think, um, to get involved. Is that still the
5: case? Sure. No cost for drummers. I do think that uh, some of the dance swings may, uh, you know, ask for some money for for uh, costumes and such. But uh, I mean, for the bateria, the, the drummers, uh, we provide drums and sticks and yeah, you know if you come to boot camp we'll ask for ten dollars a week for the first four weeks just to learn how to play and have somebody teach you but after that it's no cost and we have people from all across the spectrum I mean uh, people that I would never meet or never interact with otherwise just because you know Austin's too big of a town and you wouldn't ever meet them but now they're you know some of my best friends and we spend time together all the time and it's you know, all levels of education, you know, from all parts of the city, from all parts of the country, some people with lots of experience with Brazil and Brazilian music, some people who've never picked up a drum in their life and uh, are suddenly in love with it as soon as they join like I did.
1: Yeah, that's what strikes me whenever I go to see an Austin Samba show is a lot of times people correctly point out um austin's sometimes lack of integration and i want to say go to a samba show like you will see all kinds of folks up on that stage and it's really inspiring because there's some people who are brand new to this and then you have other percussion masters in the mix as section leaders or teachers so um it sounds like as much as you value the percussion education it's also just being part of a community that's so um and interesting and colorful.
5: Absolutely. I mean, the community is uh, uh, probably the most important part of it to me. I, uh, unlike many of my colleagues, uh, never knew much about Brazil or Brazilian music before I started playing samba. I still have not had a chance to go to Brazil. Um, many of our, you know, performers do go and, and have been many times, uh, but uh, I get to, you know, perform and learn from people who are amazing musicians, as well as just have uh, great opportunities to practice and, and play in public and parade and go to uh, events with people that uh, have become really good friends. And uh, anyway, it's all about having fun and joy together. So there's no, you know, there's no stress. Uh, it's just about having a wonderful time and, and creating joy for people who get to participate with us.
3: Did, did your wife, was your wife already in Austin Samba or did you meet her through that or did she get
5: into it because of you? Or? We're, we're coming up on 25 years together so uh, no we met actually as mental health counselors and then uh uh, we've got children that have now graduated from college and gone on and all that so we've, we're, we have time on our hands. Uh, Sharon started in Austin Samba as a dancer with the Alegria and danced for several years and has recently moved over and joined the uh, the Bateria. so uh, we've now been performing together for I don't know six seven years I guess. Well that's fantastic. That's
1: so cool. Do you ever look at each other and wink? <laughs> like, all the time. <laughs> hey girl. <laughs> cool.
5: Let's go to Brazil.
1: <laughs> well Clark I think that's a perfect place to wrap up. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to come talk with us about Austin Samba and Resistance.
5: Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it.
3: So, folks, we went to the... Amazon physical bookstore at the Domain North Side, and Addie wrote a piece for the Statesman about ten things that you ten interesting things about this you Amazon hate about bookstore. the Amazon bookstore. No, <laughs> well, we don't hate it. We don't hate I, it. I'm Let's, totally getting ten
2: questions one might have about a uh, <laughs> online retailer that opens a physical bookstore, and the first one being, which everybody asked me when I told them I went to the store, was, well, why does Amazon have a bookstore? And to me, the answer seems pretty obvious that it's another way for Amazon to engage with the public. And they they want every person in America to have a Prime subscription. That I know that that's their goal. And so even though most people we know have Prime subscriptions, this is yet another way to sort of capture an audience uh, of dedicated readers. We know that print books are actually still doing pretty well. Um, this is their, we're now up to like 15, 16 Amazon bookstores across the country. And the one that opened at the Domain Northside in Austin uh, in March was the first Amazon bookstore in Texas. So we all took a little field trip. Mm-hmm. So um, I want to ask you guys, what did you think of this physical store?
3: Well, let, let's let's start with that. That the domain seems like the obvious place to put a store like this. If you're trying yeah. to get get it, who in Austin has a prime membership? Who in Austin orders a lot of stuff from Amazon and doesn't really care if it's like carefully curated or super local? like that seems to be like ground zero for, for
1: <laughs> I like the subtle shade in this something not super Geographic original description
3: <laughs> and I like the domain I like wandering around there there's cool stuff there but it, it feels of a piece with what the domain is like mm-hmm. hey don't go to don't go to the thing downtown go to the thing way up here mm-hmm. that's sort of almost the same thing
2: yeah yeah it's like a uh, you squint your eyes you're like oh yeah that's a that, that's a bookstore. That must mean I'm, like, Keep Austin Weird supporting local... Oh, oh no, no. Oh, there's not a local shelf for local authors? What? That was but, one yeah, of our surprises. Yeah, that, that,
3: that was the first thing. And I, I actually talked to an associate there and, you know, asked them like, oh, how's it been going? You guys have been open for, like, a month. And that was one of the first questions. I, I was, is there, like, a local author section? Like, oh, no, no, we don't have that. And mm-hmm. I was like, are you going to be doing any book signings or local author events? Like, no, we don't have anything on, this, on the calendar like mm-hmm. that. It's like, okay, well, that tells me right away that this is not a local author community kind of driven effort. Mm -hmm. This is an Amazon branding exercise, basically. Which is
2: great news for book people. We definitely want to give a shout out to, uh, you know, the city's flagship bookstore downtown, which still, you know, basically, even though that Amazon, even though Amazon Books is open, there's still a lot of space for these other book retailers that we love. Um, The thing that was interesting to me is how much they use data to do the actual inventory curation. So they have a national team of, of curators, so it's not like each store gets to pick what is on the shelves. But what they do is they find the, the books that sell. There are about 3,800 titles in these stores and um, it was it, it was an average size. I don't know. It wasn't huge but like it 40 wasn't 40 something
3: hundred square Yeah, feet. it
2: wasn't tiny either um, and all the books face outward so you're definitely, they. you know, it's a discoverability kind of thing. So you're walking around the store and um, below each of the books you'll find a card that says how many reviews and the average star rating of the book and, and then it pulls a sample quote from somebody who had reviewed it online. But basically, you know, One of the shelves will say, you know, books that Kindle readers read in three days or less.
0: Mm, Like statistical books
2: books that were highly you know, on Kindle you can highlight passages. And so they actually have a whole section that's dedicated to books that were frequently highlighted by Kindle users. So they're capitalizing all all this data they have which is kind of scary. Um, but they're not actually using sort of like what you were talking about. I mean, we are obviously really interested in promoting Austin authors on this show. Um, but you, if you wanted to go and find out who are the new Austin authors, you would have a very hard time doing that in that and, store.
3: And I, I had a lot of questions about like, okay, how are they choosing these pull quotes? Who you know, Do the people who wrote the review and then have their pull quote in the store, do they know that that's happening? Like, do they? do I know that my review of Jenny Lawson's book is the one that's that's being shown in the store and, you, and used to promote and sell, and also that they that the star ratings are what they choose to create that inventory. Like, there's nothing in the store below four stars. Tali, I'm curious, yeah. <laughs> what, was, what was your take on like what was the vibe that you picked up? Well, from being there?
1: I think my knee jerk reaction was to hate it, but I wanted to unpack why a little bit and it has a lot to do with that four star rating thing um, because to me that could create an inventory of like Tony Robbins and the keto diet or something yeah. you all, know yeah just... I saw
3: the Gucci Mane autobiography I'm like okay all the Gucci Mane fans went and right. gave it five stars obviously yeah
1: you you were looking at a children's book wondering why is this one here oh because Hoda wrote it you know so yeah, exactly. like people who have like an industry or publishing apparatus behind them to create those four star reviews so it's not the most democratic space that being said it wasn't nearly as high tech of a bookstore as I imagined. Um, do you guys remember like B Dalton Bookstore from mm-hmm. your '90s mall back in the day? Oh, the
3: Walden Books. That's,
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that—that's what it feels like. You're going to a bookstore in a mall. There are these subtle choices, like all the covers facing out. You reported Addie that they don't have more than 3,800 books in the whole space. So, it is much more bookstore-esque than you're probably imagining. That being said, I was interested in your theory, Omar, that this is a Trojan horse to sell the electronics.
3: Yes. Yeah, as Addie points out in her article, you can buy a blender there, you can buy an Amazon Echo, you can buy um, a lot of you know, these techie gadget things. In fact, as you walk in the store, if you just turn right, like it's all just electronics, you know, and then left is the books. So, you know, me being a tech person, like I wander straight to the right and go <laughs> go right for that stuff to see what they have. Um, but, yeah, I think Amazon is getting into the space where Alexa, you know, where all of its voice-activated stuff, its Fire TV and its tablets, like, that's a big business for them. And they really want people in that ecosystem the same way Apple wants you buying everything from the Apple Store. So for Amazon, yeah, I think the store is a big Trojan horse to come in and try the Amazon Alexa. You've heard about it. Mm-hmm. You, your friends have it. Come see it in action so they can actually give you some hands-on time with these gadgets that, they, that they're they promoting.
1: So I want to talk about how we pay for things, because it was my assumption going in that there would be no cash register, that there's just this magical, like... It's all in the
3: cloud, Tali. Like Minority
1: Report I <laughs> scan process, where like you say yes, you want the book, and then you walk out with it, and it's paid for somehow. Are you sure you
3: want to buy this whole decor <laughs> there, book, Tali?
1: There is a checkout. There's a There's a real physical checkout with an actual person there, but you can also pay... With your Prime account, with your phone, and then walk out of the bookstore. So you there still is have to a cashless option. Yeah, yeah, you still have to go to the register and show it to the person. You show them.
3: You you scan a barcode, get the Prime price, and then show it to an associate. But then there's that whole thing that that you mentioned off mic, which is they want you with your phone out, wandering the store. Whereas most retailers, most brick and mortars, don't like that when you sh- when you so called showroom it, where you are comparison pricing you know the the brick and mortar retailer with Amazon well, Amazon wants you wandering around okay taking images of things and scanning barcodes
1: and that's an interesting choice to not display any prices when you go in there it goes back to Addie's opening salvo about why they're doing this because they want everyone in America to have a prime membership but i don't know to me that just like pierces the romance of going into a bookstore of having my phone out the whole time in price comparison like i love going to book people and reading their handwritten note cards about why this one T.S. <laughs> Eliot collection was so special and life changing <laughs> to them, and wandering over here, and oh, here's a Faulkner novel I read in the
2: eighth grade. It, you know. Like, made so, me the person I am today. And if you don't have a Prime account, you actually pay the list price, which is what you will pay at Book People. So it's the same cost of books in both of those stores if you don't have a Prime account. But if you want to know how much it costs on Prime, you have to use your phone. You have to scan the barcode or take it to one of these scanners around the the store, which I didn't really love. I just wanted to know the price. It just seemed kind of shady that they didn't have the price listed. <laughs>
3: the handwriting thing is interesting because that the one thing I noticed walking into the store was the Amazon font the font that you're so used to seeing on their website but it's like brought to life in front of you all over the place and all of those um, you know blurbs from readers and and all of those reviews they're all in that Amazon italic font and it's like and it's jarring to see it off of a screen and in real life all around you
1: are they still are they written too in some of the Amazon reviews are are great like from verified purchasers they're written with like complete sentences (laughs) and correct grammar but did you see any that are written in like I don't know, text speak, like you, letter you will love this, L U Emoji, emoji. No, exactly.
0: <laughs> I didn't
3: see any of that. They're, they're pretty literate uh, pull quotes. They're, they're, <laughs> they're obviously picking the better ones. Those
2: are Prince's book reviews. He left <laughs> RIP. But, but one other thing
3: I noticed with those though
2: reviews for you.
3: is that mo- like I was asking earlier, like who who's writing these reviews and how do they know it's, in, it's a real reviewer and does that person know they're being used that way? But then there were some that just said verified purchaser and I'm like, okay, did that person opt out? Did that person like, Make a stink about it. Is that a what? friend
2: of the yeah, author? Who is this it, Verified it, it, person, it's an and is that the real name? It's mm-hmm. an interesting proprietary question that we don't know the answer owns, to. Well, it's a good reminder that everything we do online is being utilized by the companies. You know, either I'm, they're going to say for our benefit, but really, I mean, this is, it all boils down to capitalism. That all of your, you know, your benign comments and your likes, and you know, you think that you're helping out the author by leaving the review, you're actually helping Amazon Aww. sell those books. But I just want to make one more point. Um, in the children's area, there were like half a dozen. Tablets at all the little tables. So every, every station has a tablet. Yeah. Every little table had an electronic gadget.
1: We're all parents here, so did that. I mean, God, I feel so bad that I'm like having an just a, a less nuanced view of this Amazon bookstore experience. Like, I honestly probably won't go back. But I'm very curious to hear how you guys, as parents, that struck you because. Nico's for y'all's kids are a little bit older. I know there's educational great content available on tablets, but still, it just like does something. Let's to just me say they I get enough it. of that outside you know, of to see the a table experience. instead of with real. And I would rather see a table with just lots of real cool books. Well, you
3: know what? I felt that way too. I had that gut reaction of like, ugh, you know, more tablets, you know, all around them. But then I took my kids for the first time to the Austin Central Library recently, which, you know, is amazing and fantastic but there's screens everywhere at the Austin Public Library at the you know there's the Macbooks you can check out and the Chromebooks and there's you know the the technology petting zoo with screen I mean it's like you can't even get away from screens at the central library. No, so I feel you're like that's an a unfair point. standard.
2: Yeah. Cause anytime we go to the library, they just jump on the computers and start sometimes they're drawing using, you know, like the paint program, which is so cute, yeah. but I have to pull them away and say, no, we are not leaving this place without books. So right. Avery <laughs> pick out a bag of books and then we're going to take them home. So, so serious maybe an, un- mom it may be an
3: unfair standard to hold Amazon, Amazon to too. that standard yeah. when even the central library, which we all adore mm-hmm. has screens everywhere.
2: The good thing is, is that there are still screen-free book retailers in this city for a more classic bookstore experience. We would love to hear your impressions. Uh, Listeners, if you have been by the store, please drop us a note. LoveAustin360 at statesman.com, or you can find us on Twitter, where we are at LoveAustin360.
1: Now we've come to the moment in our show where we have a toast. This is where we go around the table recommending some things we think you, our listeners, should check out. And we have Clark Richards, Assistant Director of Austin Samba, back with us to do a toast. So, uh, gentlemen, Omar, Clark, who would like to start?
3: Uh, I'll go. Okay, uh, yeah. So, I recently flew, uh, took a trip to California, and um, I did the TSA pre-check uh, in advance of that because I, I knew I might be flying a couple more times this year and I've had friends that have done it and, I, and they're like for, so for basically for 80, if you don't know what it is for $85 for five years you get to go through the the, the swanky TSA pre-check line at the airport uh, and basically you don't have to take off your shoes you don't have to take off your belt
1: you're treated with, with basic dignity <laughs> for five the years the old days
3: of flying when you'd have <laughs> to do all that bull crap <laughs> Uh, you don't have to take your laptop out of the bag. You just basically <laughs> sail right through, and and all it involves is you know you got to fill out some stuff online. You have to bring a social security card, or birth, I had to bring a birth certificate. And I go to the airport in the middle of the day. Nobody's there, no line. They just like, okay, come put your fingerprints here. Okay, good, you're good. Show us your ID. You're good. You're good. And like magic, for eighty five dollars for five years, you get to go through that line and not have to deal with every, with all the crappiness of flying. So, okay,
1: that does sound amazing, and like eighty five dollars, pure bliss. But can I ask you about the fingerprint part? Mm-hmm. Like, what's happening with your fingerprint? Why?
3: This is basically is like a, like I mean, and, and Clark can correct me here uh, if if he knows. <laughs> uh, it's basically a, they're doing like a background check on you before you do all that, rather than you're just Joe Schmo with a with an okay. ID card. Um, So they, you know, you get a assigned a a number and you enter that whenever you buy plane tickets. So it's already there in the system with your Southwest Air or whatever. And so you've already been sort of pre-screened for this. That's what makes you be able to sail through the line. Uh, And it's just, it just makes flying anything that can make flying a little bit less stressful or a little bit less painful, or that can speed me through the line because I'm always running late to the airport. Uh, so when I flew the other day, like there was like a 25 minute line through regular security, and I got through like in 10 minutes. So that even w- that, that even would that. be
1: no, that would be incredible. Because Ross and I tried to take a Denver connection with our daughter um, a few months ago, and we we're sprinting to mm-hmm. the plane. It was incredibly stressful. And if you have <laughs> yeah. kids,
3: you take they go with you through the through the wow. TSA pre check too. So even That's if awesome, so like even if you had TSA, but your husband didn't, they could go. Uh, Nico could go with you. And you'd be like, see you, Ross. <laughs> and you'd speed through the line. So, so I think it's a really good deal. If it were eighty five dollars for one year, I'd be like, eh, I don't fly enough for that. But for five years, oh come on, that's that's a that's no-brainer. exactly
5: what my wife does. She's like, I'm going through the TSA breed check. I'll see you on the other side. And I say, okay, honey, why why yeah. why, why won't you do it then? Uh, Mostly too lazy, but then there's always those uh, internet theorists who uh, wonder what they're really doing with your fingerprint. Oh, they can take my blood, semen, (laughs) spit, whatever. I don't care. As long as I can speed
3: through the line. This girl has
1: a lot of parking tickets, so (laughs) probably not looking for that.
3: Denied. (laughs) (laughs) They just put a big stamp on your thing.
1: Okay, you know what? Solid toast. Like it's not the sexiest toast ever, but this is a a quality. This
5: this is a life hack tip. Yeah, it's a life
1: hack. Yeah. There you go.
3: Great, Uh, Clark. What
5: do you got for us? Well, I'm going to go for an oldie. Uh, I, I, as a young man, read the 20 book series written by uh, about uh, Aubrey and Maturin by Patrick O'Brien, which is about the Napoleonic Wars and the uh, British Navy. And I've reread the series actually. Uh, at least once and recently I'm now listening to them as audiobooks in the car and they are so well done and it's such a great series of stories that I endorse the uh, Patrick O'Brien series on audiobook if you get the chance. And and this is the, is it
3: just like a straight narration or do they do like sound effects and all that kind of jazz?
5: Oh no this is straight narration but it's a, it's a really well written and the 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 production is really good. The reader really good. Um, and, I mean, you have to love the stories, but the stories are fantastic. So, uh, And this is the same series that produced the Russell Crowe movie uh, Master and Commander, in case people aren't familiar with the, the original books. Which was a really good movie. <laughs> that, was a, that was a solid movie.
1: <laughs> cool. Uh, okay, I also have a literary toast this week. Um, so I'm reading uh, a memoir by the poet Mary Carr, She's written several um, before, including The Liars Club, but I am reading Lit, which is her memoir of becoming a poet, but also um, going in and out of intense alcoholism. So you get it. It's kind of a pun. Lit. (laughs) Oh, Lit. Yeah. (laughs) That that is Lit. (laughs) So it's just, you know... At first, I, I admit that the prose, it took me a while to mentally adjust because she's a poet, so every sentence is very illusory, very dense. It's not just like, you know, today I went to college and then on this day I got a paperback and I got a bad grade. You know, it's like very, very, very poetic. So, But now I'm super into it and I found her writing style very immersive and i'm i'm enjoying it now so um but yeah wow she had a crazy life she also dated D- uh, david foster wallace oh which no i didn't know so it's kind of fun reading memoirs of authors because they get like a little gossipy too so that's been some fun if you're into like mild poet scandal <laughs> like it, i am then does this cover like a specific enjoy
3: period <laughs> of her life or like her whole life
1: um, you know, it's mostly like high school through uh, the birth of her first child. Mm-hmm. And during that time, that period as she's becoming a successful author she or poet, she gets institutionalized because the alcoholism gets so bad. Mm-hmm. So she has a toddler son, gets institu- institutionalized, and somehow claws her way back out. So it's pretty intense. Yeah, sounds like, <laughs> like it. <laughs> but it's... But it's really good. I heard her interviewed on the um, uh, podcast "On Being" with Krista Tippett, and she was so funny and down to earth. And you know, her poetry can be so serious that she was really just disarming. And I thought I would like to hear you talk about your life. So, "Lit" by Mary Carr. That's
5: my good wife on. sounds like something my wife would love.
1: Uh, gentlemen, thank you for your dose.
5: Thank TSA you. Speed check,
1: Master <laughs> Commander. Lit. <Good. laughs> thank
5: you. I'll see you speeding ahead in the line. <laughs>
1: That's our show. She's Addie. He's Omar. I'm Tolly. Check out the Austin 360 Instagram and Facebook for more about life in Austin. And talk to us on Twitter at loveaustin360. If you liked what you heard today, leave us a review on iTunes or
2: your favorite podcatcher. It helps other people discover the show. I Love You So Much, the Austin 360 podcast is produced by Alyssa Vidalis. The show is made with support from Features Editor Sharon Chapman and the entire Austin 360 staff. Our theme music is from local band Hardproof, which you should definitely check out at hardproofmusic.com.
3: You can find more about the show and its contributors at austin360.com slash loveaustin360. And if you want to pitch an idea for the show or give us feedback, shoot us a note at loveaustin360 at statesman.com or leave a voicemail at 512-445-3672.
1: This show is brought to you by our sponsor, Lexus of Austin.
2: We couldn't do this show without you, dear listeners, and we can't thank you enough for lending us your ears, your comments, and your crawfish boil Instagram pics. Until next week, we'll see you in line at the Paramount for the Moon Tower Comedy Festival.